Dror, thank you so much for coming on the Thesis Driven Podcast and video series today. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Brad. I'm honored to be invited. So let's dive in. So your first book, Rethinking Real Estate, I have it right here, came out right before the pandemic hit, but it identified a lot of trends that were really on point and even accelerated by the pandemic, such as the rise of remote work. So tell me a little bit about you know, what were you watching? What were you paying attention to that clued you into some of those trends as they were happening? So the biggest trend probably, as, as you mentioned, is to do with remote work and then the kind of repercussions for all other assets, obviously office, but then retail, housing, uh, cities as a whole. And what I saw is starting in 2015 or so, uh, the impact of the internet on cities and buildings seemed to take a turn. So from the mid 90s, you know, when the internet came along, the economist and other experts kind of came out and said, you know, people are going to be able to work from anywhere. Offices are less important. Cities are less important. Uh, but as we know, the opposite actually happened for the following 20 years from like mid 90s to 2015 or so. Cities actually made a comeback, especially the biggest cities, you know, the New Yorks, the San Francisco, but also the Londons, the Frankfurts, the Berlins. Uh, and of course, the emergence of other cities in the developing world as well, which suddenly became more important than ever. So it looked like the kind of paradigm of the Internet was that because the economy is becoming more creative, people actually need to innovate more. And because they have to innovate more, cities become more important because cities allow people to kind of interact intensively. Uh, cities offer a lifestyle that caters to the kind of highest skills employees. So because these people become more important, the places that they like to live in become more important. And also cities have the largest possible labor pools. So if you're in a sophisticated kind of a highly uh, kind of advanced division of labor kind of system like we have in, in an advanced economy, you want to be in the largest possible labor pool. So right. the biggest companies will kind of gravitate towards a handful of the largest possible cities. Uh, I took all these theories and around 2015, I started to see cracks in these theories. One, some of those superstar cities were starting to lose population. Some of those uh, innovative, fastest growing companies, most notably Amazon, but also Facebook, Apple, Google, Spotify, Shopify, started to split their headquarters into two and three and four, basically showing a preference to hire from multiple locations rather than having everyone in the same place. Um, and even the office market, while it still looked like it was booming, it was increasingly propped up by all sorts of things that are external to the market, most notably venture capital and, and WeWork and Hotel and those type of companies were that it, by 2019, they were basically taking half of all available space that came to the market. So you could kind of see, okay, the market is kind of holding up, but there's a lot here that, that is not kind of, is not really a true signal once you scratch the surface a little bit. And then I asked myself, how could this be? I mean, the economy is still booming. These companies are growing. The internet obviously is still here, but the kind of clear trend from mid nineties to 2015 seems to start to fray. And I found the answer to why back into all those theories that explain why the opposite was happening, particularly the matching theory, where suddenly you see that companies are so starved for talent that they are starting to show a preference to hire from an even bigger pool than the largest possible city than just being in New York. They'd rather, if there's a trade-off suddenly between hiring from a larger pool or having everyone in the same place, they're starting to show a preference for hiring from a larger pool. Obviously, some of that to do with rising costs of being in cities, of hiring in cities, and at the same time, the declining cost of remote collaboration and the higher quality. So I think around 2015, it reached kind of a, a, a tipping point where suddenly it was, it was good enough to collaborate remotely uh, and companies were starting to make that choice. And, and that's just on the office front. There's other trends, but uh, I'll, I'll stop here for now. So it does seem that that was one of those things that's been totally memory hold since the pandemic is that the office market was not rocking and rolling prior to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. It was showing real cracks. There were a lot of questions about vacancy and what role was WeWork in particular playing in effectively propping up that market. Yeah, so I mean, we work. It's really a magnificent story. Like the the beauty, the beautiful irony of it. I mean, people ignored it, then it kind of came along. 
by 2019, it started to really demolish the office market, but kind of, it seemed like within reasonable boundaries at that time, you know, by, you know, but yeah, by Q4 2019, really a lot of demand for office disappeared. But the funny thing is that now is we were coming back as the office market tries to recover, we were goes bankrupt and starts reneging on more leases and kind of make sure that no, 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 you're not getting up. I'm, I'm, I'm still here. I'm going to drag, I'm going to finish you off. So it, it's kind of uh, amusing that all the landlords that laughed at Adam Newman, a lot of them didn't understand what's coming to them at the end of the day. And yeah, no, no offense, but it is amusing. Right. It, it, it effectively really served to uh, make the peak peakier and the trough troughier yeah. in many ways. Um, so I'm going to talk about now your next book, After Office. So made a lot of projections in rethinking real estate. A lot of them came to pass. You know, your next book is very focused on this concept of the nonlinear economy. Uh, what does that mean? So, you know, a, a lot of our assumptions about the world uh, in real estate and beyond are really grounded in the in the 1950s, in some kind of vision of what is considered normal, you know, the middle class, the stable job, the career. Uh, and to a large extent, obviously, we, we it hasn't been 1950 for a long time. But until very recently, it was still possible to cling to most of those assumptions. And we kind of fluctuated. We trended away from it, but we fluctuated. You know, sometimes there was more inequality, sometimes less. Sometimes the economy was more stable, sometimes less. Uh, but I think here, too, we've reached some sort of breaking point where most of the economy is no longer that kind of economy. Now, that economy, I call it a linear economy in the 1950s, where it was an economy that was focused on making mostly stuff. Yes. So things, refrigerators, cars. And when you make stuff, you have a linear production process. You kind of put in raw materials, labor, capital, and very predictively, you know what's going to come out of the other side. You know how many washing machines you're going to make today. And even when it comes to marketing and things that are slightly outside of your control, it was a relatively linear world because you make soap, you produce a soap opera, you call your friend at one of the two or three networks, they air it, and now you know that you're going to get in front of the relevant customers. They're going to see you. They're probably going to buy your soap. You're going to have two or three competitors. Every 20 years, some other international competitors might come along. And that's the story. And it's hard enough, you know, to run the business, to take care of the operations, to secure the raw materials. Today, we live in a nonlinear world. One, more and more of the stuff we make is no longer stuff. It's virtual, it's digital, it's intellectual. Uh, and in those type of production processes, the amount that you put in, the measurable amount that you put in, tells you very little about what you're going to put up. You know, you can be a Jeffrey Katzenberg, a chairman of Disney that decides to launch a Quibi, an amazing app. You bring in LeBron James and Reese Witherspoon, Steven Spielberg, and nobody cares. At the same time, some guy in Korea starts jumping in the street and he gets to a billion views for the first time ever for some reason that, you know, it's governed by basically complex social dynamics and algorithms. Uh, so that's one. Second, even when you come to market, other things, you know, I'm not just talking about the content industry or software industry, even if you're selling cars or houses or, you know, we even mentioned WeWork, suddenly someone with a story can show up, go viral, get $14 billion and go and demolish one of the most stable and predictable industries in the world because of the same algorithms and the same dynamics. So whatever you're doing, you're suddenly dependent on these kind of nonlinear dynamics. Uh, and that means it's much harder to predict anything. It's much harder to pick winners. It's much harder to plan in advance. Uh, and to tie it back to offices, it means that the current kind of shift towards distributed work, remote work, flexible work, uh, amorphous corporations and employment arrangements, most of the popular discussion about it is still focused on the employees. Like, you know, people are lazy, people are Gen Z, millennials, healthcare, childcare, all of that is true. But really the deeper driver towards a big shift in kind of the, the economic, the economic geography really comes from the corporations themselves and from a change in the nature of the economy itself. Like the demand for flexibility, the demand for lack of boundaries, the inability to plan ahead and sign a long-term lease is due to a fundamental change in our economy. That's only going to get more and more intense uh, as we proceed. Well, in some ways, like it doesn't just sound like we're moving to a less linear economy, but also a less predictable one. 
Mm -hmm. in many ways. I mean, a lot of what you're describing, you know, obviously there are compounding effects, there are nonlinear effects. There's also a lot of just stochasticity, just a lot of randomness. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you have an event that happens, someone, you know, goes viral in a certain place that takes off something else takes a billion dollars in capital and falls flat. Are we just talking about a less predictable world here? Yeah, less predictable and also a world where your traditional metrics and indicators are much less valuable than they've been. I wrote about that even in Rethinking Real Estate. Even simple things like the fact that now the the private investment markets are so big that you have more and more $100 billion companies that are completely private. So they're much less transparent than the public companies that you would sign a 10-year lease with. And also, even as they go public, some of our largest companies are money-losing companies. So if I'm a landlord, I wrote in 2019, and I have to decide whether I'm signing a 15-year lease with General Motors or with Uber or Tesla, and to decide which one is more likely to pay the rent in 15 years, you know, the dry metrics tell you General Motors, right? They've been here for a long time. Maybe they're profitable, but by coincidence, exactly at that year, it's kind of a Lindy uh, story. Or you kind of sign up with a startup that's three or four years old, in debt, burning money like hell, who's going to be here in 15 years? I mean, probably Tesla and Uber, right? But uh, it's a very hard decision to make based on dry data, which is how most people like to make decisions, particularly in real estate and, and with real estate lending and all the conservatism that's built into these processes. So I, I do want to spend some time on return to office. And uh, you know, you've seen a lot of CEOs come out over the past year. You've seen mayors come out and say, pound their fists on the table and say, we've got to get back to the office. Our companies are suffering, cities are suffering, whatever. Is this hopeless? Are they dinosaurs? Yeah, to a large extent it is. Uh, I mean, the, the mere fact that it should be some sort of goal for people to be in offices is something that I struggle to understand. It's definitely not a compelling case if that's how you're trying to convince people, you know, do it for your country, come, you know, come back to your cubicle and, and, and water cooler. It doesn't, you know, no. Uh, there's definitely things that mayors and landlords and everyone else can do. Uh, but I think in general, we're kind of settling into to where we should be now, more or less. And as I said, I think it's only going to get worse in the sense that the nature of offices as assets has changed forever. Uh, there, you know, I think overall demand will never come back to where it was. A lot of the demand that will come back will come back to other places where currently offices are not available or the kind or, you know, it will not fill up the offices that are empty. Yeah. Uh, the demand that will come back to those offices will be more fickle. It will sign shorter leases and be yes. willing to commit to shorter times. And it will be more demanding. It will require more operating expenses, more uh, capital expenses. Uh, so essentially, it's going to be it can it's still a business that you can make a lot of money in, but it's much more like a business rather than an asset. It's something that you have to manage right. and operate it, and it, think it about. It requires tenderloin yeah. care. I, I do. Before we get into what the office yeah. owner should do today, I do want to steel man this return to office mm -hmm. for sure. a moment. Now, the best argument. You know, I have heard that people need to get back to the office really comes down to more junior employees, that they are missing out on learning opportunities, on mentorship opportunities by working in their studio apartments in their pajamas, you know, two to five days a week, rather than coming in where they can get FaceTime and get more attention from the senior folks in the organization from the mid-level folks in the organization. I mean, I benefited when I was, you know, 22, 23, 24, having offices, I showed up to 60 hours a week and being able to learn from the people around me. So I'm curious kind of how you think that education and mentorship, you know, if, 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 if office is really going to be secondary, how does that gap get filled? Yeah. So one, I'm not saying office is going to be secondary. I'm saying for that a lot of jobs and a lot of tasks, it's just not going to be where it was right. uh, four years ago or 20 years ago. Uh, I think to the extent that there is a clear purpose for the office, I'm all for it. And I think in many cases, there is a clear purpose for the office. 
Uh, I have no problem with Elon Musk, for example, saying, oh, I just bought the most important company in the world. I'm just going to sleep on the floor and put mattresses here, uh, Twitter HQ. And I expect all the people who want to work for me to be here with me because this is war. This makes complete sense. What doesn't make sense is most the bulk of the economy, the large banks, the service companies, etc., that say, oh, no, you just have to be here five days a week because that's how we work. But I'm the boss. I'm not going to be here probably anyway. A lot of your managers aren't either. Uh, even if you're here, you're going to be on, on a Zoom call and probably increasingly even on your own screen in your own computer in a phone booth. But I just want you to be here just because, you know, that's how we work. That has much less of a purpose uh, than anything else. So I think as long as it's tied to a purpose, offices and in-person interactions have an incredible role to play in the world. Uh, that said, most companies on earth and most employees are not constantly reinventing the wheels or being trained on sophisticated things. Uh, so a lot of the conversation around that kind of presents some kind of idealized version of what people even do and what they actually gain at the office. I think a lot of those arguments are not relevant for most employees. Third, longer term, more importantly, tying back to that idea of nonlinear economy, I think that the whole production function of the economy has changed and that will kind of propagate. And part of what that production function means is that we are going to have more people trying things and failing at them. We are going to throw more stuff at the wall without spending a lot of energy or time on different people. And whatever sticks is going to stick and whatever doesn't stick is going to go somewhere else. To go back to that Quibi example from Jeffrey Katzenberg, what he didn't understand is that to win in, let's say, a mobile world of algorithms, it's not enough to say, okay, I'm going to produce films that are like shaped like a vertical iPhone screen rather than like a cinema screen, or they're going to be 15 minutes rather than 90 minutes or 45 minutes. The production function is different, which means I'm going to be YouTube or TikTok and just enable people to throw whatever they want at me. And whatever seems to work, I'm going to double down on that. And whatever doesn't seem to work, I'm going to step away from. And I think at the corporate level, we're going to see similar things. So more amorphous kind of arrangements, less stable employment, less clear definition, more empowerment of people to figure out how they want to work, whether they want to come back to the office, do it from home, learn one way, work asynchronously. As long as it works, it works. And different companies will experiment with different approaches. But so far, what we're seeing is that those that are more open tend to win. Uh, you know, NVIDIA is the kind of prime example at the moment, a company that makes hardware, the most sophisticated hardware, designs hardware, the most sophisticated things ever invented by human beings. And they work, they rely heavily on remote work. They're very distributed even when people are at the office. They allow people to manage their own time and their own style. And they're not just doing it because they want to be nice. There's a reason for why when you're working with the biggest, the most sophisticated, specialized talent on earth, and you try to do that at scale, especially if you try to grow quickly, that you have to resort to these type of approaches and compromise on you know, the office. And maybe it means that you have to fire people more frequently, that you have to hire them differently, incentivize them differently. It means all of those things. So to go back to your steel man, you're right. If you're trying to run a company from 20 years ago, you still have to have everyone at the office and teach them the same way. But if you're trying to run a company today, increasingly there's evidence that there's other approaches that are probably better. Well, a lot of that training too is you know, was built for a world where YouTube didn't exist. And, you know, you look at it now, I have two little kids and I am probably on YouTube once a day mm -hmm. saying like, Hey, I, I forget how this works. Let me look it up on YouTube. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that is something it's, it's for us, the parents the now. Yeah. That's why, that's why it's terrifying. Have, yeah. Um, so, okay. So, so maybe office is not dead, but there is a more purpose driven office that there has to be a reason for, for people to be coming in. So let's say you're a major office owner today. Let's say you are, you know, Scott Reckler at Arxar or, you know, Rob Spire at Tishman Spire. You know, what are you doing? What moves are you making today to future-proof your business into this new world and, frankly, save mm -hmm. your assets? So one, as they're doing, I try to scare everyone as much as possible so that they give me more time to figure things out so that the bank doesn't take my assets away uh, or allows me to renegotiate my, uh, my lease, my, sorry, my financing, including defaulting in a few cases to let them know that I'm serious. 
to let the government know that a big crisis is coming, both city, state, and federal, so that they'll give me whatever benefits I need to get. And, in and order just to, to make it clear to our readers, kind of the game that happens here, the banks don't want these assets either. Yeah. That is the key. It's not like the banks are looking for footfalls here to take these office buildings back. They don't want them. They would rather, as they say, extend and pretend. Yeah. And, and the pretend is important as well. It's not just that they don't want them because they, they don't want to manage them, but it's imperative for them to pretend that they're as valuable as they were four years ago for as long as possible because they have their own covenants and issues and other stories that they've told themselves yeah. or other They're people. under way more regulatory pressure yeah. today than they were certainly nine months ago prior to the failures of Silicon Valley and First Republic banks. Yeah. And, and New York landlords can ultimately walk away and start again, but banks that are stuck with whatever they're stuck with, you know. We usually bail them out anyway, but they're stuck with them and there's no one else that they can roll roll it over. Uh, so yeah, the first thing I would do is kind of create that kind of macro <laughs> artillery softening of the environment. Uh, then I would, you know, to the extent possible, I would basically, I mean, I'll start at the end of where they need to get to. I think most assets, definitely offices at this point, need to have some kind of branded operator that is focused on a specific group of customers or multiple groups at different levels or different assets that understands the needs of those customers and is able to offer what customers need. Different groups need different things. In general, for Office, I would say the Office of the Future is not a place, it's a network, meaning your job is to empower a company to enable its employees to be as productive and happy as possible for whatever task they have at hand, wherever they are. So if they need to work alone, make that possible for them. If they need to have a meeting with their team, make that possible for them. If they need to impress a client, access specialized equipment near home, at the office, away from home, while traveling, ideally this is what they want to be able to do, to click on a button and open the relevant door and to make sure that it works for them. How you get there as a landlord, different ways. You build it yourself, you partner with other people, you collaborate. I think ultimately, more and more of the office market will look like the hotel market where the kind of real estate and kind of customer facing operations are going to split into different entities, not just because they have different talent and capabilities and management styles, but also they're funded completely differently. They cater to different investors. You know, one is more like an income play. One is more of a growth play. Uh, I think we'll see more and more of that, that landlords are trying to kind of do everything under the same roof, but I think they're clear strategic reasons why ultimately it's not going to work, particularly as services become more important in technology and having a network and a reach. Uh, so I think that's where you have to go. Underneath this, I would say, because you, you asked specifically about the uh, Spire and, and, and Reckler, there are still going to be buildings that are assets, especially in cities like New York, that, you know, if you own this building, you're in good shape. It's going to cost you money and you're going to take a lot of work, but, you know, it's still going to be relatively safe, but there's going to be fewer and fewer buildings like that. And even them will behave more like operating businesses than like assets. Right. E Rockefeller Center is going to be valuable, but it may be valuable because of its roof deck, its retail mm -hmm. appeal, its experiential appeal versus the portfolio of leases that are within it. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned branded and this nature of kind of a branded operator for office space. I mean, you know, WeWork is an example, but so is Industrious, Serendipity Labs. There's a number of others. You know, that almost speaks to kind of the necessity of these being third parties, because I can probably name on one hand the number of office owners who have the level of scale required to probably build a national brand. Mm -hmm around this kind of workforce. And I know Jamie Hadari, uh, he's a friend of mine, CEO of Industrious. And you know he speaks to, they're just now getting to the scale where they can really serve global clients. Mm -hmm. Because to serve a global client, you need location in Singapore, you need a location in Hong Kong, you need a location in Israel, you need a location yeah, in Dublin Angeles, and London you need a location and in New York. Mm -hmm. And it's like that that requires immense scale. And I don't know many office operators this side of Heinz mm -hmm. that have that. Yeah. And, and even Heinz. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Heinz is a great example. They're also private, which I think helps a lot in this type of environment because they can experiment, they can mix different types of capital for different types of activities. 
they can fail quietly. They can do all sorts of things that I think large public companies uh, are basically not allowed to do. You know, if you're a REIT, you have very narrow mandates that prevent you from doing certain things or investing in activities. Can't have uh, bad income. Yeah. So, but uh, but to go back to the story, yeah, I, I took it will mostly be third parties or companies that are external to, to the kind of traditional real estate business as, as happened in, in hotels. I think, I mean, you mentioned Jamie Hodari, wonderful person, beautiful company. And there's you as well, Brad. I don't know if you're familiar with your own story, but I think the Commons trajectory is a classic example of what I'm talking about that, you know, it starts by co-living, you know, focusing already on a very specific group of customers, their needs, what they like to eat for breakfast, how often they do their dishes, how they split their bills, how much toilet paper they need, all sorts of things that a traditional real estate company doesn't have to or like to think about. But the interesting story about Common, and obviously I wrote about that in the book as well, is not the co-living story or those specific customers. It's the whole, it's the whole approach to real estate, right. which I think then you took as well and said, oh, let's do the same thing for families, for workforce housing. There's probably 20 other segments that are big enough for large companies to be built uh, within them. And ultimately, to mention WeWork again, the world will have a $100 billion office operator that is not a landlord per se. And it will have several residential operators of the same kind. Uh, it's a matter of time and it's a matter of figuring out the right, way to the right ways to finance it. But from the demand side, it's clear that the demand is there. Uh, what we haven't figured out is how to actually deliver it and make money and to fund each kind of part of the business with the relevant source of capital. Right. Uh, yeah. So I want to shift focus for a second. And uh, you wrote a couple of months ago about Japan and Japan as a harbinger of kind of what is to come economically for us. Uh, what did you mean by that? So one, you know, Japan is fascinating. Uh, anyone who spent some time in Tokyo immediately understands that they're witnessing the peak of human civilization. Uh, it's not surprising that that peak is a city, you know, kind of a machine that enables right. coordination and collaboration while allowing people to be safe and happy and have access to opportunities and to entertainment and to whatever they need. Uh, so I often look at it as the future just because of that. You kind of look at it and say, OK, if we're lucky, that's where we're going to end up, uh, at least as far as cities are concerned. Uh, and of course, economically, you know, very advanced, uh, very educated, uh, very dependent on kind of sophisticated industries very old, so facing some of the demographic yeah. trends that we're going to face in the next 10 to 20 years. They started dealing them 20 years ago. Even on the monetary front, you know, following 20, 30 years of very loose monetary experiment, which now we are starting to try to understand what that means for us because we're kind of on the tail of that experiment. Uh, so that's kind of the setup. And then you look at what they're doing right, and there's a lot. Uh, first of all, you know, zoning and yes. allows mixed use uh, in the most wonderful ways, uh, it enables incredible density without just building skyscrapers, just at street level, you know, building dense, few levels, but enough that as, as a whole city, uh, it works. Uh, incredible public transport and multimodal of various kinds. You know, it's great for walking. It's great for cycling. Even for driving, it's better than most American cities. And of course, multiple types of trains, regional, local, fast, neighborhood, all mixed together, like when, like Tokyo's subway map is just like a, it's one of the most wonderful thing ever created by humanity. You know, I look at it and I'm like, this is just like, it's glorious. You know, it's it's amazing because it really enables you to live without a car and to get anywhere in the country really, really quickly. Uh, Switzerland, another example, but much smaller. That basically you can be in a city and you can get to a, a ski slope in an hour and a half by switching two trains. And relatively cheaply is just unbelievable like in new york i can't you know i can barely get to the the local grocery store uh like that i mean in new york metro not in uh, not in manhattan uh then they also use space and integrate technology and information systems in ways that kind of enables you to create more space out of nothing uh, starting with reclaimed land and all that stuff which is kind of simple but even at the street level you know they have retail inside office buildings, sometimes inside residential buildings at multiple levels. And that retail attracts customers, one, with very creative signage that is kind of famous in Tokyo, that kind of stacked signage, but also through apps because people anyway start their journey online 
and book things and pay for things that way. You don't really need to have a street level storefront. You can attract people to the fourth level or the fifth level, which is something that we're not doing even in Manhattan in places where uh, real estate is really, really expensive. Uh, and generally they have more of those third places that are explicitly third places. They kind of grew out of the kind of internet cafes, but these days most people have internet at home and on their phone, but they still use a lot of these places to have a meeting, to have a call, to even have a nap, kind of on-demand spaces throughout the city for various uses. Uh, even obviously, I mean, love hotels or things for those type of uses, but not as like a seedy thing that just, you know, uh, people take, uh, I don't know who, workers to. But it's something that people use on a daily basis as part of their life. You know, I'm in a relationship. I need time to meet my girlfriend. We live in a small apartment. We're going to meet regularly in some, uh, you know, hotel that is specialized for that purpose. So that's what we're talking about at the end of the day, to, to find more and more segments of specific uses that people need and to build assets and operating systems that enable people to make that use and to pay a premium for that specific use and for nothing else. I really want to double down on that point because I think it's a very interesting one of that, you know, over the past 10, 15 years, you've seen the emergence of technology that allows people to discover whatever they want in their area without going and looking at a retail storefront. They can look it up online, say, hey, there is this thing happening, this event, this store, whatever, on the fifth floor of this one building. Now, in a place like New York, where that should, the first place that should happen, that's been blocked because commercial rents have been way too high. Mm -hmm. You know, if the office floor on 40th and 5th Avenue is renting for $110 a square foot, there's not a lot of uses that make sense there mm -hmm. other than Class A office. But if that drops by half, a point I've made before when we were starting General Assembly, we rented a floor at 20th and Broadway for our first campus for $27 per square foot. This was in 2010. I mean, by 2019, that space would have rented for $80 a square foot. Yeah, three or four Never times. Never would have started General Assembly. We were on a fourth mm -hmm. floor, admittedly serving customers who were booking classes and events. So I think you're going to see a lot of really interesting uses now make sense with lower commercial rents. Mm -hmm. I think it's a good thing for New York. I think it's a good thing for society writ large. Yeah, I agree. And also going back to that nonlinear economy concept, we need physical spaces that enable that type of high churn, rapid experimentation uh, that enable people to kind of try something then try again. And we have that on the internet already. It's amazing how easy it is to try ideas, to launch new things. But there's other things that depend on physical space and depend on physical interaction. And the easier we make it for cities to enable that, the more attractive they become. And in a way, this, this is possibly their main purpose going forward, you know, to be those places that enable that intense interaction, but as ad hoc as possible without making those large, long commitments that most I mean, occupiers do today. You've never been bearish, and correct me if I'm wrong, on the concept of aggregation, mm -hmm. physical aggregation of people. Yeah, agglomeration. Mm -hmm. Agglomeration, sorry, is the word I was looking for. And I think that agglomeration is just now much more about choice. It's about affinity. Mm -hmm. It's about what do you want to do and not your company is mandating you to be in a certain place at a certain time, five days a week. Yeah. So to come back to those kind of three theories that explain why cities were big after the internet, I spoke about matching, but then there's kind of the creative class argument from Richard Florida of, you know, cities are more important because high skilled people are more important and they like to be in cities. And that theory is still correct. But the conclusion people drew from it five years ago was like, oh, CBDs are going to remain important because these people right. want to be in cities. And that's not the right conclusion. These people will want to live in cities because cities offer something that's not available anywhere else. If they offer grade A office buildings, I can have that in the suburbs as well, or I can avoid it equally in the suburbs or in a CBD. But if they offer some kind of street level interaction, the ability to hang out with friends, the ability to do business in ways that you know are not possible remotely, then that's attractive. And you can see that even within certain cities, you know, in London, Mayfair is doing great. And uh, what's its name? What is it called? Like the Canary Wharf is doing terribly because Mayfair is nice and walkable and pleasant and mixed. 
So people want to be there and pay higher rents than anywhere else. But right. Canada Wharf is like, you know, these tall buildings that you kind of commute to. So nobody wants to spend time there. And even within Manhattan, you see those differences. Exactly. Some neighborhoods that are booming, even outside, you know, even in Queens and in Brooklyn that are booming now, while the kind of most expensive parts of some parts of Manhattan are empty because people, you know, don't want to go there for work. Uh, so, yeah. So cities, uh, I think the biggest cities are going to be bigger than ever. I think you and I, we're on a panel deep inside COVID, I don't know, two years ago or something. And we were asked to make some bold predictions. And I said then that I think in 10 years, the population of Manhattan is going to be significantly larger than it is uh, today. But it's going to have fewer offices. Yeah. So. And those offices hopefully will be full of people, just not as offices. Yeah. Or um, animals so or plants. <laughs> don't, don't get me on onto the pig farms. Um, <laughs> One of the stranger, what do offices become pitches I've heard, hog farms. Mm -hmm. um, so you've written about a lot about distributed work. We've talked about the impact. I want to talk about the global impact on income distribution. Who are the winners mm -hmm. and losers here? Obviously, if more work is distributed, more work is remote, you know, the thesis-driven developer database, uh, which we've been building for the past you know, six, nine months, uh, you know, we're working with the team in the Philippines to build that. And it's been an incredible experience, mm -hmm. uh, very positive. So, so what are the impacts on global income and wage distribution uh, as these remote work concepts become uh, more ubiquitous? So one, I wouldn't frame it as kind of, you know, who's going to lose, who's going to win. I think that in general, there's going to be more opportunity than ever for almost anyone and there's going to be less certainty for everyone. So just kind of, if 50% of success is showing up, like Woody Allen said, including showing up in New York, that's not gonna be enough anymore. The fact that you're somewhere is not going to guarantee you a job that enables you to maintain the kind of lifestyle that is that you wish to have where you are. At the same time, you are now able to match with people who value you more than anyone else on earth at any given moment. And these people might be next door or they might be across the world. Uh, overall, I think the effect will here will be quite similar to what we've seen from globalization so far, which is, you know, actually the world is becoming more equal. Income is becoming more evenly or normally distributed on a global scale. But within specific economies, it is becoming more polarized and there's higher inequality. Uh, so, you know, we, saw, we see the rise of kind of middle classes or upper middle classes around the world while the middle class in America was gutted because either you're doing service work in America, so you're in demand because robots can't replace you yet, or you're in the capital business and you're investing in things or own things that benefit from those lower costs or those efficiencies or those new markets that come from globalization. Uh, I, I think we'll, we'll see more more of that. Uh, at the same time, if we play it right, it is going to make our society, if we're talking about the US as specifically, much wealthier. And if we allocate those resources properly, we're going to live much better lives. You know, we can have better healthcare, we can have better education, we can have cheaper energy. Uh, and I think all of these things will contribute to a feeling that we're not in a zero-sum game, which is the feeling we're all currently stuck in, where everyone is kind of hates everyone else and looks for someone to blame and is resentful. Uh, I think even today, there's much more to do with the resources we have. And definitely in the future, I think those dilemmas are going to become more acute because both the, the kind of the pressure of inequality is going to become more intense, but the pie is going to be bigger and there'll be more to spread out, uh, so to spread around. So it's definitely... I think uh, a dramatic period in history, let's say, you know, after the the first or second industrial revolutions, we had to figure out also two new things, nation states, what is their role, social security, public education, public health care. Uh, and I think we're, we're once again getting to that point of saying, okay, clearly all of those relationships need to be negotiated right now uh, for the benefit of everyone. I hope you're right. I, uh, you know, I hope that the benefits of technology and what's happening today uh don't just lead to more uh don't just lead to more resentment um they, they, they will but hopefully we'll manage to navigate that kind of the, the 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 breaking point i mean economists always like to talk about you know 
oh, technology, it always creates more jobs than it, uh, than it eliminates. Right. But it also, you know, we had a couple of world wars in the last Messy hundred path. years, communist revolution in Russia, in China, and all like, yeah. So hopefully we, we can avoid it now, uh, at least for our little big island that we live on, but hopefully for the rest of the world as well. So if we're talking about the future, I, I, th I think it's hard to avoid uh, mentioning AI and the role that AI is going to play in all this. Uh, what's your take on the rise of AI? Do you think it's going to displace a lot of jobs, create more? And uh, how would you be playing that right now? So one, the question itself is very meaningful. The fact that we're facing something that is potentially revolutionary, that might affect all of our lives very, very quickly, not in 20 years, but in six months or in 18 or in 24 months. And that most of us or nobody has any idea what it's actually going to do right. and how soon. Uh, and that, again, comes back to that nonlinearity, that inability to plan anything, even about your own company in terms of who do I need, how many employees, the employees that I have, what exactly are they going to do in a year and what type of tasks with what type of equipment and how are they going to sit and kind of interact in order to do it? There's a lot of a lot we don't know, which is kind of very exciting and terrifying at the same time. Uh, AI clearly is a big deal. I think anyone who who hasn't played with it, and there's too many that haven't, should. And I think once you play with some of those tools, you I mean, your mind is immediately blown. They're just unbelievable in terms of the things they can do. Uh, people like to kind of highlight the things that they cannot do or the things that they're not even supposed to do and kind of laugh at them or dismiss them. I don't know, maybe it's come some kind of a coping mechanism. But ultimately, they're incredible. And I think without even thinking of where this technology is going, just the capabilities that we have today, just to let them propagate into the economy, be adapted into different industries and use cases and connected to existing data, you know, workflows and databases, that already will have a dramatic impact. Uh, what will it mean for people? It comes back to that inequality story. I think humans are now more scalable than they've ever been. The single individual or the small team can have unlimited firepower, basically. They can create things that even seven years ago, people could not imagine that they'll be able to do on their own. Uh, really, the only limit is your imagination. And if you can communicate a little and you know collaborate with a, two or three people, then it's multiplied. Uh, at the same time, it means that a lot of professions that were very comfortable or boring no longer have that luxury. Uh, you know, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, I think in the Black Swan already, he talks about these kind of scalable and non-scalable occupations. You know, basically why your mom told you to be a physiotherapist or a dentist rather than like an NBA player or a, a pop singer. Because in those latter professions, you either win big or 99% of the people don't make any income. While, you know, if you're a dentist or if you, even if you're average, you're going to make a decent living. But now technology, both the Internet and remote presence and AI, which are also kind of meshing in together because more of remote conferencing now involves generative AI right. and approaches that people weren't like looking at even two years ago. Uh, and it enables more and more professions to become scalable, people to serve each other, even in the most physical types of occupations remotely, which means that everyone is competing with everyone else right. for the biggest markets possible. And it's no longer possible for an employee to just say, okay, I'm just going to do something safe. I'm not very ambitious and I'm just going to cruise or even work hard and just survive. I think it's just going to be a much more dynamic environment for everyone, which goes back to those policy solutions, which I think we'll have to come back to, whether it's UBI or something else, but a completely different kind of approach to, you know, uh, to risk and, and what you get for being a, a member of society. And I feel that AI is going to hit the upper ends, even the yeah. high variance jobs too. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm seeing AI pop stars come out. They're not very yeah. good quite yet, but I think we're probably 18 months away before you start seeing uh, tech conferences booking AI pop stars for their... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not shows. real also, by the way, but... Uh... I think AI will do, AI, even remote work, will do to white-collar jobs basically what globalization of manufacturing did to, to blue-collar jobs. Uh, so, which is quite terrifying when you think about it at the end of the day. And I think that's that's what's going to happen. And, and it is happening already. I mean, we keep looking for those 
algorithms or robots that will replace people directly, but we don't notice that there's a, they enable a lot of new approaches that make a lot of whole people or departments or companies redundant altogether, even if they don't kind of come at them directly. Right. Now, if OpenAI has 770 employees and generates a billion dollars in revenue, and Google has 200,000 employees and, of course, generates much more revenue, but if that's the company that replaces it, at their peak, if they become a trillion-dollar company, OpenAI will not have 200,000 employees. Okay. It's probably not going to have 50,000 either. It's just going to serve the same need with far fewer people. And, and that trend is also going to intensify as we proceed. So last question before we move into the lightning round. I mean, we've talked about a lot of different trends here um, from AI, remote work, distributed work. Mm -hmm. um, are there specific cities, places, regions that you think will benefit in an outsized way from this? I mean, who will be, I know we talked about this on the panel two years ago when you talked about New York. Let's revisit that question. Geographically, who are going to be the winners from this? I see the distribution of winners is kind of a power law. Uh, I mean, obviously, the size of cities was always kind of power law-ish distributed, but I think that's going to intensify. So a bit like what the internet did to entertainment already. Initially, people looked at the power law of entertainment incomes and said, oh, this is going, you know, the long tail is going to democratize everything. It's going to become more normal. The peaks are going to become lower and the troughs are going to become higher. What actually happened was a bit of both. There is a long tail. More people can make money on the internet from writing songs, from entertaining, from writing. And at the same time, the biggest superstars are bigger than ever because there's something in those online dynamics that also benefit, you know, they create network effects. If you're one of the two or three names that people remember, they'll go to you and look for you. Uh, people want to talk about something and because they have less attention, they're going to gravitate towards those most obvious things that are easy to remember. I think a similar thing will happen to cities and even to places as a whole. I think more and more places are becoming viable. So almost anywhere can win, you know, by focusing on, specific value proposition, whether it is taxes or lifestyle or weather or the other people that are already there or the people that are trying to get there or or proximity to something else. Just the same I way think you can have a retail store with a niche appeal on the fifth floor yeah. of an office building, you could have a geographic location, a city, a place with the same kind of niche appeal. Yeah, basically, you, you now have people who are making half a million dollars a year who can live anywhere and you have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of them. Uh, just in New York, we have hundreds of thousands of them, which is kind of insane. So there's a lot to, to eat into. Uh, but at the same time, I think the biggest possible cities, those that are able to adapt and remain attractive, will be more attractive than they've ever been. So again, the New Yorks, the Tokyos, the Londons, uh, less so the San Francisco's, you know, cities that are economically diverse, that are culturally diverse. Uh, and that are able to absorb growth and to enable a nice lifestyle that you can only have in a city. So that walkability, that no car ownership, access to great education, access to great healthcare, access to great other people. Uh, that's going to be at a higher premium than ever because people don't really need it anymore. And that's why it's going to become a premium thing rather than, uh, you know, a place that just attracts all the average people. It's going to be a place that attracts only the people who can pay the most. Uh, and part of our responsibility is to keep it as an engine of opportunity as well, to enable new people to come in, to try stuff, to experiment, to create things, uh, not just in order to be nice, but just that's how cities can remain vibrant and you can keep innovating because in a nonlinear economy, you also have new competitors emerging all the time. So you have to keep making stuff every day, like on YouTube and on uh, TikTok. You don't just discover something that works and then write it for 50 years like uh, some cities have been doing. I love it. Dora, let's, uh, let's move to the lightning round. So these are a handful of questions I ask all, right. all of our guests. Uh, quick questions, quick answers. Um, we ready? All right, first one. Uh, what's one piece of advice you would give to a real estate developer or entrepreneur starting out today? Pick a specific group of customers with unique needs and circumstances and cater to their needs better than anyone else. Tell us about one startup or entrepreneur you're watching really closely and why? So it's less of a startup or, or entrepreneur. Actually, the, the things I'm most excited about are like what you're doing with Thesis Driven or my friend Packy McCormick is doing with uh, Not Boring. I like the kind of single person, media, finance, investment, entity. 
and to see how that kind of scales, how a person with a voice and a point of view can really become a little empire on their own, which obviously is another example of everything we've been talking about so far. I love that. I'm a big fan of Packies too. He's an inspiration for me. Um, when you and I are recording this podcast in the 2030s, uh, what's the most important thing we'll be talking about? Hopefully nuclear energy, uh, offices in space, and uh, yeah, and the, and the new baby boom that came after all this abundance of energy and housing and, and everything else. The, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned the baby boom. I mean, it's, a set of stats just came out yesterday of birth rates uh, in 22 in the first half of 23, and it's crazy mm-hmm. how far they've dropped. Across mm-hmm. the board, continents, countries, China is almost, you know, below. Yeah, nobody, nobody's left over there. Wow. It's wild. I think here, too, it will be probably polarized. I think people who can are going to have four and five and six kids, and a lot of people in the middle are barely going to have any. Um, yeah, which is not great. But yeah, I, I can't imagine. I, I mean, I'm seeing that's that's that already. Like, kids are like a luxury. I'm, I'm seeing my friends having four kids and five kids. I'm yeah. like, you know, wow. And I, I'd be happy to have a couple more as well. So it's, uh, I have two. Um, if you could change one real estate-related policy or law, what would it be? To let people build as of right, I don't know, probably two or 300% more than they can do today in all the large cities, particularly around existing transport hubs, public transport. So I asked this question... And another thing I would add, sorry, if I have to, in America, I would also detach public schools from local uh, housing taxes. You know, a public school should have the same funding everywhere in the country. I'm not against private schools or charter schools. They're great as well. But if you have a public school, it should be equal in quality and in resources everywhere in the country. Underappreciated issue. Um, I, I asked this question in a general sense, but now I'll ask it in a specific one. What is one specific city or place you would bet on today? New York City. Our own? Metro. What's Metro? Uh, what's one new technology that will have the biggest impact on the built world? So probably AI, but not as a technology for real estate, but as something that fundamentally changes the demand for real estate. And not just not necessarily for the worse, but it mix, mixes things up significantly over the next 10 years. And last question, what's your favorite app on your home screen? Ooh, probably just the podcast app or Audible, you know, nice. whatever allows me to inject more stuff into my brain as quickly as possible. Well, we'll be there. Uh, <laughs> thank you so, so much uh, for joining me today. Uh, one of my favorite thinkers about the future of real estate, future of work, future of the world. I'm really honored to have you on the Thesis Driven Show today. Thanks for joining my pleasure, Brad. And if I can add a tiny anecdote about New York. Please. You. you know, nine years ago, I showed up in this little city from Beijing, of all places. And I attended this real estate tech event. And you were one of the speakers, among other cool people. And again, it's one of those things that can only happen in New York. You know, you meet people, you inspire each other, you learn from each other. And even 10 years later, you're, you're all building something cool uh, in a relevant field. So it's cool to do this now virtually. <laughs> been a been a fun journey. George, thanks for joining. Thanks, Brad.